0: Right, so we are at the end of the series, and anytime you reach the end, right, it's just like when you reach the top of a mountain, what do you, what's a good thing to do? Turn around and look back down and see where you came, right? So we're going to turn around and see where we've come from today, um, and like we said, that's the 16 chapters, and this is part 29, and so that's a lot of things to go through, and don't worry, we won't be here forever, but I just thought, hey, here's Romans, and some of you may have heard of the Romans Road. A lot of times that is a a term that's used to talk about a a series of maybe a half dozen verses or so in Romans that clearly lays out the plan for salvation. And I think it's there. But I think there's maybe a larger road that runs through Romans. Maybe we should call it the Romans Highway. (laughs) It goes from the beginning to the end, and so I'm going to just sort of walk through what I've seen, I think, what we've picked up here um, this year as we've gone through the book of Romans. And so I'm going to go through these points of review um, and 15 key verses that would sort of walk us down this highway. So we'll just go ahead and start here. The first thing we saw... Was that God is merciful. God is merciful. Why? Because he offers us salvation there in Romans 1, 16 and 17. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. That gospel, that gospel is The good news. It's good news. That's what gospel means, is good news. And what is that good news? The good news is that we can be right with God. We can be right with Him. He's offered us a way so that we can be right with God. And not only has He given us a way to be right with Him, He's given us a way that we can live rightly. Right? And we need salvation. Why? We need salvation because... God is perfectly just. That's been one of the themes that's been running through Romans there. In chapter 2, verses 6 to 8, it says God will repay each person according to what they've done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. It's this simple scale. You do good, and you're going to see eternal life. You don't do good... You're not going to see eternal life. You're going to experience punishment. And that's just. We should rejoice that God is perfectly fair. He's perfectly fair and perfectly just. One of the things we've mentioned before is that we're all going to get to the end and they're going to go, well, nobody is in heaven who doesn't deserve to be there, really. And nobody is going to be in hell who doesn't deserve to be there. And we're all going to be okay with the scale of justice. But what does this tell us? It actually tells us some bad news. And that bad news is that none of us are going to make it to eternal life on our own. Why? Because none of us are by persistence going to do good, to seek glory, honor, and immortality. We're, we're not going to do that. We can't do that. We're sinful, fallen people. And so God is perfectly just and we can rejoice in God being perfectly, God being perfectly just. But there's a problem because none of us can persist in doing good. Fortunately, God's plan for salvation satisfies his justice. It's satisfied. Romans 3, 21 and 25. Now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. That just means he's a substitute. He put forth Jesus. Jesus comes forth to be the salvation for us. None have done good. We saw that in chapter 2. But God has allowed Jesus to stand in our place and take the punishment that's due for us. So you go, well, how does anyone enter into eternal life? Well, God, if you've received this free gift, when God looks at you, he sees Jesus and he says, yep, you lived the perfect life, you persisted in doing good. And the only part that we have to play in that is faith, to have faith in him to receive the free gift. Now this salvation has been available throughout history. We saw that in Romans 4, the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, it didn't come through doing good works, but through the righteousness of faith. So even before there was a law, even before Jesus had come to the earth, faith was there. This plan of salvation was available. It's been there throughout history. It's available to all people in all places at all times. And that salvation demonstrates that God loves you at the maximum level. Romans 5, while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's the maximum level. This has been one of those key points of Romans, that God loves us there. How do we know he loves us there? Because he gave his son to die in your place. Like we've said, I'll repeat it again, you are a bunch of good people out here, and I might die in your place, but I have four sons, I'm not giving up even one of them to die in your place. I don't know if I love you that much, but God loves you that much. And God gave his son to die in your place to satisfy that judgment. And so we understand God loves us. That's the maximum level. That's at the max. Christ died for us. God gave him up for you. And that's how we're saved. And that's how we come to eternal life. But there's more. As we mentioned, salvation also opens the door to changes in our broken lives. We're all broken. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6, 1-4 says, Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. I love that, the newness of life. See, because of salvation, we're not just saved into eternal life. We're saved into a newness of life. A newness of life. And this newness is a freedom. It's a freedom to pursue God's best for us. We're not obligated to obey God because we've got to get right with God. We're given the freedom to obey God because it's going to do good for us. It's going to help bring those changes to our broken and sinful lives. And God doesn't just leave us to it. He's with us as we pursue that healing Romans 7, verse 21, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I love the answer. Thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. God not only has saved us, He's given us a deliverance from sin and He hasn't just left us to it to figure it out. He comes to live inside us by His Holy Spirit. God is with us as we pursue healing. And as we're walking through that, we recognize that God's love can never be taken away. Romans eight thirty eight and 39. I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We find that struggle against sin very difficult, don't we? I know I find it to be very difficult in my life. It's a very, very hard thing to walk out, but there's a beauty in this, isn't there? I mean, what does this verse tell us? It says, you know what? God loves you. He loves you at the maximum level, and nothing can, nothing can take that away. Nobody can come to you. No spiritual power, no person, no government, no one can come to you. No circumstances can come to you and take God's love from you. That's pretty amazing. And even more amazing is nothing you can do can take God's love away from you either. No sin you can commit. Nothing. That's what it says. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. That is amazing. That is a very intense and high power. And that power is so high, God's power is not subject to my choices I can't control God Romans nine eighteen. then he has God has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills there's this grand debate and we dove into it there in chapters 9 and 10 about predestination and free will well does God control it or do we control it And a lot of people can land in different places, but here at this church where we land is we go, wow, remember that illustration? It was like two wheels. We have the wheel, the tire of predestination, and the tire of free will, and there's an axle that connects them together, and that axle is God's love. And that's what holds them together, and so we hold on to both of those things, and both of those things happen together, and we can land there because that's where Paul lands in Romans. He lands at that. So in the end, we recognize that God has power over all. He's got power over all. I don't have any power over him. And yet, somehow, in his power, he's given us the ability to choose faith or to choose otherwise. And then we get to those choices. We see that God's salvation is fortunately a simple choice. It's a simple decision. Romans 10, 9 and 10 summarizes it. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So with the heart, one believes and is justified. With the mouth, one confesses and is saved. Gosh, that's so simple, isn't it? We don't have to jump through hoops. We don't have to make pilgrimages to strange cities. We don't have to give a certain amount of money. We don't have to do a certain number of jumping jacks. We just have to believe. That's all we have to do. If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. If you've never done that, you can do that today. There's nothing stopping you. And once you do that, once you're saved, God doesn't just leave you and say, all right, there you go. There you go, Lone Ranger. He goes, no, you're part of a new and diverse spiritual family. Romans 11, you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. He uses that illustration of the olive tree, and we talked about that. It had been long a symbol of Israel. And we know that the Israelites were God's original chosen people. But from the beginning his salvation, his plan for salvation was intended to include everybody, again, at all places and all times. And he wants us to be part of that family because in family there is strength and together we have the choice to pursue sanctification. Romans 12, 1 and 2, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That word sanctification, we talked about that, and it very simply just means becoming more like Christ. Becoming more like Christ. And if we're becoming more like Christ, what does that mean about our lives? It means they're getting better. It means they're bearing more fruit, and good things are happening to us. Paul gives a list in chapter 12 of things we can do to become more like Christ. Things like loving each other, serving each other, honoring each other, giving, blessing, and so on. But the heart of all of those things, the heart of those things, is love. For others, Romans thirteen nine and 10. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. The heart of sanctification is love for the others. God's given us the commandments, and he's given us those in part as a means to show us what will bear good fruit in our lives. All of these things, all of these commandments, if you go, yeah, if I obey those commandments, it's going to bear good fruit in my life, and it's going to bear good fruit in the lives of others. That's the point of God's standards. And we start to think about love for others, and we have to recognize that our love for others should always exceed our personal convictions Romans 14 there, and on into 15, it says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men, so then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up a couple of weeks ago we talked about this, that coming to convictions, having values, and having practices is really important for us because it helps us grow in our faith and it is a way that fruit is born in our lives. Yet, we must never let these convictions take a precedence over our love for others. And finally see that our love for others will lead us to share the gospel with them. There in Romans 15, last week we said, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. What is the ultimate act of love? It's to tell others about Christ. That's the ultimate act of love. Telling others about the hope, the grace, the peace, and the salvation that you have found. That's how we show love for others. And so that brings us there up to the last chapter, last chapter and a half of Romans. We've made it. And from here, as is typical in many of Paul's letters, he he kind of delves into a lot of personal greetings. <laughs> Right, The things I'm not going to leave to Daryl and Tim to deal with next week. And it kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Right, Sometimes we can kind of be annoyed. Like, oh, he's going to have these names and I'm going to read through them here in a minute. And you're like, why are these names? But it makes sense because he says, have a love for others. And then what does Paul do in his letter? He shows love for others by having these personal greetings. He's showing how much he loves these believers in Rome. So let's just go ahead and read. I'll read it. I'll put it on the screen. You can follow along. We'll read the rest of Romans. And then I have just a couple of closing thoughts on that passage. All right, so starting in verse 22 of chapter 15, Paul says, This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you, once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. But he's not done. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Chinchree, that you may welcome her and the Lord in a way worthy of the saints, and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many, and of myself as well. Greet Prissa and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches that Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church and their house. Greet my beloved Eponatus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my brother in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachys. Greet, greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegian, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. Now we get on the home stretch here. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you, so do Lucius and Jason, and Suscipiter, and my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greets you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Cordus, greet you. Now Amen. There we go. And that's the final passage. And I made it through all those names. Now I see Paul giving us three encouragements in this final passage. And so we'll just cover these three one at a time. The first one is this. He encourages us that the local church, that's us, the local church should strive to be personal, familial, and affectionate. And there's a picture of some people being personal, familial, and affectionate at an appreciation banquet a couple weeks ago. So if you look back at that passage and you look at look at that, man, there was a lot of greetings, weren't there? He named a lot of names. He named a lot of names. And it's because he knew all those people. And he knew them by name. And so that's a question I would ask for us is, how are you with names? (laughs) How are you with names? I am very bad with names. I really struggle with them a lot. And I think about Paul, and we don't know how much interaction he'd really had with these people, but he just names these names and names and names. And if it was me, I probably would have been like, hey, greet that one guy with the funny mustache. Right? (laughs) Right? But Paul didn't because he showed love. He was personal with them. He remembers the names. And so that's an encouragement to us, even looking at all those names and those greetings, is say, hey, let's know each other's names. Let's know each other's names. You know what? If you don't know someone's name, ask them. If you're comfortable with that, ask somebody else. Say, what's that person's name? And get to know people. I love also in the middle there of that passage, he talks about Rufus which is a cool name, right? But he also mentions Rufus's mom, and he doesn't mention her by name because he says, she's been a mother to me as well. So he probably just called her mom, and he thought it would be weird to just say mom because <laughs> it's not his mom, right? And he also uses the term brothers. He refers to brothers a lot. Now, These are all kind of family things, familial things. I don't know what your family background is like. I mean, every single one of us has a different kind of family and different levels, but maybe you are part of one of these families, but have you ever seen a really tight-knit family? They're like so tight. Maybe you see them on social media, or you just see them in person, and they just seem like they're always like hugging and laughing, and they got all these inside jokes, and they always got their back, and they're always really tight, and they're always really together, and it's really cool, but it's also kind of annoying, isn't it? And you know why it's annoying? At least why it's annoying to me? I probably shouldn't be annoyed. I should rejoice with those people. But it's annoying because I go, I'll never get into that circle. Right? I guess if you're single and one of them was single, you could get married and get into that circle. But even then, you would just kind of, yeah, I'm not really part of that. But that sort of family close-knitness is what Paul is stri- wants us to strive for in the church. And you know what's not annoying about the church? anybody's welcome. You don't have to marry to get into it. You can be part of it. He wants us to be part of a family. So when we look at that, look at your own life and say, do I see the people sitting around me? Do I see the people in in this church? Do I see them as brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers? And more importantly, am I living like a sibling or a parent to these people? I think there's an encouragement for us in that. And then, of course, there's this. The holy kiss... Greet each other with a holy kiss. That seemed like a holy picture. If you do a Google search of each other the holy kiss image that's what shows up. I don't really know the background of that picture and thankfully they're not kissing because kissing strangers or people not in your family is not very hygienic it's, it's, we're very concerned I know there's a lot of sickness going around it's like we don't want to be doing that ah. but this was a custom it was a custom of Roman culture it was also a custom of Jewish history so there was a lot of background to that and the point of having these sort of holy you know kisses on the cheek and I know people in Europe. Maybe we do that a little bit more than we do the point of that is to extend affection to one another to be affectionate with each other because affection fosters a sense of peace and security doesn't it? that's the point so I'm not proposing that we start kissing each other I don't think that would work because culturally that would be a little bit strange but I think we could be very we could be strong at having handshakes appropriate hugs so on and so forth Paul's encouragement for us. Second encouragement he has for us is that the battle is spiritual, but beware, because it's gonna to come to you by way of others. We understand it's the spiritual battle. There's these things going on in the spiritual realm we can't understand, but it's gonna to come to us that way. People He says it there, I appeal to you, brothers, watch out for those who cause the visions, create obstacles contrary to the doctrine you 've been taught. Avoid them. Such persons do not serve our Lord Christ with their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent, as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet, so he ties these things together, people and the spiritual battle. As believers, we know there's that spiritual battle and it's going on in unseen ways, but it's going to touch us in very seen ways. It's going to come at us through people. And we remember in Romans, we're encouraged to love all. Love your neighbor. Be open. Welcome with open arms and love. But we also got to still be aware of that spiritual battle. We know it's going on. I think what Paul is saying here is we don't don't really have to Be afraid of those who are openly opposed to what we do. We were having that discussion in our gospel group this week of, uh, you know, people who are very openly opposed and have this freedom to be openly opposed to the Christian faith. And we go, okay, we know who they are. Paul doesn't warn us about them. He says, love your neighbor. But Paul is warning us here about those who seem to be righteous. And so let me explain. I think Paul clues us in in this passage here to four things. Division, contrary doctrine, self-centeredness, and flattery. You think about those four things, those are not really frontal assaults. They're not someone coming at you. They're more of a Trojan horse. to kind of come into the midst and climb out of the belly and cause a problem, right? And so let me describe it and go back to our illustration. Last week we were talking about rowing together. And for those of you who weren't here, I'll just sort of summarize that that illustration, the idea we were talking about. There's a core of faith, and that core of faith is what makes us Christians. And that would be, you know, someone would say, I'm a rower. Well, you're a rower. That's the core of what you are. And then when you get beyond that, there's values and practices. And Brad was alluding to this morning. We talked about that last week. There's all these values and practices that other Christian organizations, other churches might do a little bit differently than we do or a lot differently, yet at the core they're still Christian. But if you're going to get in this boat and we're going to row together, we need to row in the same way. We need to have the same values and the same practices. And even if we don't like the values and practices, we go, this is the boat God's called me to and I'm going to row and we're going to row together together. And then there's all those other things that really don't matter. Like, you know, if you're a rower, what music do you listen to? Well, it doesn't really matter, right? You don't have to impose that on other people. So we talked about that some. So here's this illustration, and we get it back to this way of, ah, the spiritual battle is going to come to us by others, right? So if somebody walks up to this, and they're like, you know, oh, they're just like in plain clothes. And they go, hey, they're rowing team you guys seem pretty cool. Could I row with you? And they'd go, well, what's your experience rowing? And he goes, I, I don't have any. Well, they go, all right. We know who that person is. Maybe he likes rowing, maybe he doesn't. Or maybe he just sees this is a cool thing and he's going to jump in the boat here and we can sort of help coach him along and, and plant these things, right? But what happens if this guy, this guy shows up? You go, oh, Look. He's like, hey guys, I want to row. I've got experience. And they go, wow, look, he's like a strong young man. He's very comfortable with the water. He knows how to use a paddle. He's good to go. So hop in the boat, man, and start rowing. Well, you can imagine they start rowing, but is, is he doing the same kind of rowing they are? Well, not in these pictures. So you imagine he suddenly he's like, I'm gonna, I know how to do this. And he stands up. That's probably going to cause a problem, right? When that whoa, and then he's going to start going like this. Well, they're all going backwards, and he's going forwards, and he's using an oar and he, you know, a different kind of a paddle instead of an oar, and it's going to cause all these problems. And they're like, oh, but I saw he was this guy who's comfortable on the water, and he seems to be strong, and he seems to know how to move his arms in a rowing motion. But he's going to cause problems, and maybe he shows up in that boat and he starts telling other people, hey, you ought to be paddling like me instead of what these other people are doing, because I did this before when I was in the tropics on my paddleboard, and it worked really well. Or maybe he's really devious. He's like, ha-ha, I got into the boat, and I've got my power drill. I'm going to start drilling holes in the bottom of the boat. Right? The person who shows up in the clothes, you're like, I'm not worried about that person. But the person who shows up and is like, I've got experience, and I can do this, and they want to start rowing their own way. You can see how that's a little bit of a problem, right? And I think that's what Paul is warning us about. So the first thing I would say, he's, he's asking us to do is, beware of those who are rowers, who say they are rowers, who are not rowers. Right? In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus mentions that. He says, you will recognize them by their fruits. you recognize them by their fruits, not their looks. By their fruits. Looks can be deceptive. So we've got to beware of that. Those who might come in with the Trojan horses. The second thing, I think, which is a little bit more personal, is make sure that you are a rower on the team and not a divider. I think sometimes we can show up and most people aren't even malicious in saying, oh, I'm going to go sink that boat. It might not be your intention. But understand, if you show up as the paddleboarder and you want to try to make the rowboat do something different, you're causing division and problems and challenges. You're being self-centered. Paul's warning us against that. So I think that's the second thing Paul wants to do. And then the the third thing, the final encouragement for us, I think, from this passage, and we'll be done, is that when we are devoted to worshiping God, we are on the way of grace and peace. Let's go all the way back to the beginning. In Romans chapter 1, Paul says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. And now at the end... Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Christ Jesus. Amen. The goal is worship. When we're devoted to worshiping God, that's how that grace and peace is going to roll into our lives. And so, as we close Romans and we close this series and I close this morning, I just want to say I agree with Paul. My heart for each and every one of you, my heart for you is like Paul's was for the Romans that you would worship God in spirit and in truth, that you would know the gospel you would know it so well that it works its way into your heart and influences everything you do and that God's spirit would then fill you with that grace and peace that Paul's praying for. That's my prayer for you. And that's what I have to share. That wraps up our Roman series. So I'll pray and, and close and we'll be done for today. God, thank you for the truth that's found in your word. And we thank you for the privilege of being able to meet together and study the book of Romans this year. God, it has been a blessing. It has been a blessing. God, I, I trust it's been a blessing to others, and I know it's been a blessing to me. God, we thank you for the good news. Lord, we're all broken. We're all sinners. We know that we can't persist in doing good, and we can't get there on our own. None of us is going to earn eternal life. Only Jesus Christ satisfies your justice. Thank you for offering the free gift of Christ, the free gift of salvation to us. All we have to do is believe. If we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that you raised him from the dead, we will be saved. Thank you for that truth. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for saving each person here who's placed their faith in you thank you for offering that free gift Lord and we want to walk out together into life as a spiritual family and as individuals who are intent on sanctification not because sanctification is going to earn us some favors or earn us points but because it's going to bring good fruit into our lives and it's going to be a way that we can show love to others Lord make that our goal make that our goal Thank you for your grace and your peace that you've given to us by your Holy Spirit. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.